Welcome to Valley Church. I'm so happy that you guys are here this evening. It's good to see all of you. Um, I want to begin tonight just with something a little different. Um, I just felt like it was, um, I just wanted to talk about um, why we gather on Sundays, and not Sundays in particular, but why we gather, why we meet together as a church, just quickly to kind of overview that, and then also why we do this particular part of our church service, why we uh, read and why we open scripture. So I'm going to go through it kind of quickly, um, just an overview, because I felt like I wanted to talk about that today. So um, as for why we gather, why we gather together, I can give you like a simple and traditional answer, which is good, and it, and it is true. But So we'll start with that. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So there's one part of it. And then Acts 2.46, in describing the very, very early church, like right after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, uh, gives us a window into what their life was like, their church life, and it says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So those are two of the scriptures. There's also just the overwhelming kind of um, implications as evidence in the New Testament letters where Paul and Peter are very clearly writing to churches, addressing these letters to the churches in all these different cities. Um, and they often gave their, when they were addressing the people in those letters, they were giving commands and encouragements and teaching and rebuke and all that, all that sort of thing. But they're giving those types of um, teachings in the second person plural. So rather than saying, hey, I need you to go do something, it's I need you all. We don't really say y'all here, but that's what the second person plural is, is y'all. So the idea or the implication is that these people um, met together. They would have read these letters together. Um, much of what Paul even wrote about to the Corinthians, for example, was about all the things that they were kind of doing wrong in their church gatherings. Um, the implication is that they gathered regularly. Um, there's also like the Jewish traditions that the early church likely would have inherited, whether that was meeting weekly in the synagogue or observing Sabbath or what would kind of become the Lord's Day where there's a day every week where you don't work. You would spend time together with your friends and your family and break bread together, read scripture and worship. So in short, that's kind of a simple, maybe even a simplistic uh, answer of why we gather, because the scriptures teach us to, and we have the kind of implied example of the early church throughout the letters. Um, but what about reading and teaching scripture? Acts 2.42, again, same passage. The very beginning, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. So this would be the apostles perhaps teaching on the Old Testament or them writing what would eventually become their letters to the churches. Um, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Um, in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, it says, all scripture is God-breathed. And that's where we get the word for inspiration. If you've heard about the doctrine of inspiration, it's the idea that these scriptures, the words of God, they come from the mouth of God. And it says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not only is the scripture inspired by God, but it has a purpose, and it has, um, it has value in what it can do to transform people into the people that God wants us to be. Um, and then finally, just a very kind of clear command in 1 Timothy 4.13, 
uh, says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. And that was addressed to Timothy for the life of the church. He's telling this young pastor, spend your days talking about and reading from and teaching from the scriptures in your church. We also have, in addition to those kind of explicit um, scriptures, we have Israel's example in the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy, where God tells them that the law that he's speaking to them, um, the words of God should be always before them, that they should be thinking about them and talking about them with their family while they're walking and while they're doing chores and all this sort of thing. We could also do a whole separate teaching on what the Psalms say about the scriptures and how important it is for us to learn and memorize and meditate on it. Um, the implication is that God's people are people of the word, that we are people that think about it, that we talk about it, that we read it, and particularly in this gathering, that we read it out loud and we um, try to discern what it means for us and how we can better follow Jesus because of it. So perhaps that like little five-minute glance over why we gather on Sundays and why we open the Bible every week, maybe that's enough for you. And you're like, yeah, the Bible says it, I'm good. Um, for me, that is certainly a foundation. That is a really, really firm foundation of why we do those things. Um, when I get maybe a little bit, um, it sounds bad to say it this way, when I get a little tired of just the same old rhythms of church, um, those scriptures and those ideas help keep me on track. They remind me of what the foundation is. What doesn't help me is the argument of like, this is just what the church does, what it does. It's what we've always done. Um, those arguments don't help me because people uh, can do things for long periods of time only to find out that later they shouldn't have been doing those things. Um, attending church and studying scripture are not those. Um, so, but uh, my goal is to cling to really good, true, and helpful reasons for why we do something as repetitive as what we do in church, which is every week we gather and every week we open scripture. So the foundation is that God tells us to. God tells us to be together regularly and he, and he asks us to open scripture together. What I wanna do now is just to suggest something to add on top of that. So I'm not trying to replace that reason, but I'm trying to kind of reinforce it a little bit. Um, and to do that, I wanna just think about a couple moments of the story of the Bible. So the, near the beginning in the book of Exodus, shortly after God delivers Israel from Pharaoh in Egypt, he like miraculously delivers them through this escape through the sea. And um, uh, they sing this like epic song of praise. They're just like, they're on cloud nine. And then it's like days or weeks or months later, uh, they begin to complain about their, stat their situation of kind of wandering through the desert. And they actually wish that they could go back to Egypt where God had just rescued them. And they were kind of craving um, the food and the water and maybe some sense of security that they had when they were in Egypt. Not long after that, after God delivers Israel from their enemies like the Canaanites and he establishes them in this new promised land where God was supposed to dwell in their midst and establish them as a people, they began to worship other gods. They started, literally started just abandoned Yahweh. And uh, way later in the story, shortly after these churches in Galatia um, experienced the life-changing power of the gospel. Um, Shortly after this, they start to forget it. They start to kind of add to it or change it. So in Galatians 1.6, Paul talking to these churches says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. So those are just three kind of random, just the first three that I could think of examples of this, which is that humans are a spiritually forgetful people. 
we have this like certain amount of amnesia that just kind of naturally sets in and kind of quickly and we just forget who we belong to and what our life is about and we just drift over time. It's not necessarily on purpose. It's not like a willful act of sin for us to do that. It just happens. We just drift away from the Lord sometimes. Like Israel, desiring to go back to Egypt, we start thinking about certain comforts and securities that we miss about our old life. Or like Israel in the Promised Land, maybe you, we start to envy the lifestyle of those who don't follow Jesus. Or like the churches in Galatia, we are drawn and seduced to a, some kind of theology that's, that's new. Um, or like the church in Ephesus, maybe we forget our first love. Um, or like the church in Corinth, we fight amongst ourselves, forgetting the love and humility and unity that God has called us to. We are a forgetful people. And because of this, I like firmly believe that we do truly, absolutely need a minimum of a weekly, personal, communal, and sacramental reminder about who we are and to whom we belong. So I say weekly because I just think two weeks is too long. I don't know if you've been away from church for more than two weeks at a time. I'm sure you have. When I, when I have, when I'm away from my people, my church family, it's at the two-week mark where I'm, I just start to get funny in my head and I have doubts and I think, I don't know that I want to come back. I just am drifting away when I'm gone for too long. Uh, the enemy really starts to get a foothold. It starts to lie to me and I start listening. Um, so weekly, a weekly reminder, also a personal reminder, because I think this is an essential, inherent ingredient of what the church is, is that it is a physically gathered group. Now, I don't speak against online church, at least not right now, but, uh, and sometimes it is the only option, and I understand that that's been a case um, recently, but I'm more convinced now than ever that church, if at all possible, has to be gathered in person. And part of that is for this next part, so weekly, personal, and then communal. Um, tied in with the last part, it needs to be experienced with others that you do life with. So that's your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, people that we live, you know, we live semi-close to one another. We need to do church communally, in person. And then finally, um, say sacramental, meaning that we continue to observe the sacraments that are handed to us as the church being um, baptism and communion. These are like the sacred um, things that God has ordained for us to continue to like ground our reality is what it means to be the church and the people of God. Baptism signifying our death to our old selves and then our new life in Jesus. And then communion, the weekly obedience um, where we remember as often as we eat and drink, the scripture says that Jesus has sacrificed himself for us, broken his body, shed his blood for us in order to bring us into his family, to forgive us and give us a new life. So I firmly believe that we need that because we are drifters and wanderers, or at least I am. I hope that maybe you identify with me. Um, the purpose of teaching scripture in the gathering, um, besides obeying Jesus's command to do so, is because it is probably the best way to remind ourselves who we are and to whom we belong. We have this um, word of God that does not change and places us and kind of grounds us into reality if we are willing to dig in and to read it together. Um, 
when we read scripture, not even necessarily when we talk about it or teach through it, that in itself allows us to place ourselves in the story and to remember that we belong to Jesus and that we stand in a long, long line of followers of God. Um, there are some passages of scripture that kind of lend themselves to very practical, concrete, hands-on life application where you read something and uh, you know like, okay, well now I know that I'm supposed to go do this or maybe I'm supposed to not do this. Um, but some passages of scripture are like that, but others are not like that. Um, like you'll, um, I've been working on this thought for a while and it sounds more controversial than it is, but 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and useful. And uh, I agree with that, all scripture is equally inspired by God but not all scripture, I think, is equally or as readily applicable in your life. So I've started to call it this, um, it's like application density in the Bible. So you guys know on a cell phone or a tablet or a TV or something, there's pixels on it. And the more pixels there are per inch, it's called like pixel density, right? Um, it describes the resolution of the screen. You can zoom in farther on something if the resolution is there and you won't see pixels, you'll just see the image. Um, I think scripture has a differing like application density depending on what you're reading. So a lot of the New Testament letters are highly dense in this regard. There's a high resolution where you like, oh, you read one verse and you're like, wow, there's something that I can do, something that I can work on in my life right there. And then you read the next verse and you're like, there's another thing. And you've read a, a chapter and you're like, oh my word, there's 12 things that I can work on and I know they're right there. Very kind of readily applicable to your life. Um, you can zoom in more and more and there's still things that we kind of can grab as things that we wanna work on. But there are other parts of scripture equally inspired by God, and I would say equally as important, but they don't have the same resolution or like application pixel density, if you will. They require you to zoom out, to maybe look at a whole chapter or multiple chapters, or maybe even a whole book for us to kind of grab some very clear practical things that we should change and kind of be transformed by. Um, where you might not find a life lesson in each verse, but you will find, like in Genesis, you'll find some kind of truth that will shape the life, uh, shape your life with the whole story of Joseph or the whole story of Jacob and Esau. They would kind of require us to know the general idea of a whole story or maybe even recognizing patterns from one story to the next or from, or from one book to the next. Um, I say this because tonight's passage in my mind is a story that forms us. It's not something that you're gonna walk away tonight going like, mm, now I know what I'm supposed to do with my Christian life. But it's formative for us to know the story. And I also hope if you're reading through the Bible that you don't feel quite so bad when you're like reading through parts of Leviticus or Numbers where there's like lists and names and laws and you feel like, well, I'm not really getting anything out of this. I just wanna say, that's okay. I don't know that you're meant to, every, you know, every little verse you read trying to read some law that doesn't make sense to you. It's okay if you're not just like, radically transformed by that one little verse there. The whole of the book should, and we'll get to those, those books in probably like 12 years probably, but um, you're on your own for now, sorry. Um, but I bring this up because uh, tonight's passage, again, not immediately practical, like there's nothing, maybe God will give you something where you walk away and you're like, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do with this right now, but it's important, it grounds us in the story of the scripture. Um, and that's what we're gonna talk about tonight is Matthew chapter 14. That was like a 10 minute intro or something just to tell you that if you don't leave with something practical, that's okay. Um, but we're still gonna read scripture and um, attempt to understand it better. Matthew chapter 14, we're finally in chapter 14, which means we are like 
just about halfway through the book, which is equally encouraging and discouraging at the same time. Um, let's read the passage, Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. Um, there's some heavy stuff in here. I thought about sending out a disclaimer to the parents if they brought kids, so you're welcome, Ventes and Higgins, to have some stuff to talk about with your kids. Uh, 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her requests be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. So, just a nice, happy, light passage for us to work through. Um, we're going to look at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. The phrase at that time is just Matthew trying to place what he's about to say in the context of what's been happening. Um, the general context of Jesus ministering to people in the Galilee area. Um, Herod the Tetrarch is one of Herod the Great's sons. So Herod the Great was the guy in charge when Jesus was born. Before he died, he divided up his territory between his sons. Herod Antipas is the one in the passage here. He inherited the area of Galilee to rule. Um, the capital city of this region that he ruled is called Tiberias. And it was like miles away from where Jesus was doing his ministry. So it's like in Herod's backyard under his jurisdiction. And we learned that Herod is now hearing reports about this guy, Jesus, and all the things that he's doing, the miracles that are happening, the people he's healing, the, talking about the coming kingdom of God. Herod hears about it. And then verse 2, he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That is why mirac miraculous powers are at work in him. So what we see in Herod is this like, fearful, guilty conscience with some weird theology and superstition coming into play. So as we'll read shortly, um, uh, Herod suspects that John the Baptist has risen from the dead, or that maybe his, his spirit has kind of inhabited Jesus, this person Jesus, and that's why he's able to do these miracles. John didn't perform these kinds of miracles like Jesus, so when Herod hears about miracles happening, he thinks it's John 2.0, come back from the dead with new special powers which reveals some funny thoughts that Herod had about how resurrection worked and maybe even incorporates like probably an ancient Greek philosophy that we actually still tell stories about today, which is that if someone is wronged in life, that their spirit would come back for like revenge on the person that wronged them. That's what Herod think, thinks is happening. Um, the last that we heard about John was uh, that he was in prison. We didn't know why he was in prison. But now, according to Herod, uh, John is dead. And so Matthew then, in verse 3, starts to give us a flashback kind of of what had happened. Why was John in prison in the first place? So verse 3, now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. 
For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So there is like a mess of complicated family tree and marriages and background in the story, which we're not going to kind of get bogged down by. But the Herod of our story here was first married to the daughter of a king of another country for some type of political alliance. But then he spends time with his half-brother's wife, Herodias. They fall in love. They want to be together. It's possible that both Herodias and Herod had legitimate reasons for wanting to divorce their current spouses, but what is for sure is that their marriage together would have broken the covenant law uh, outlined in Leviticus, which forbids marrying your brother's wife while your brother is still alive. So John is a prophet. He's speaking the truth about Herod to those that are around him, those that would listen, um, and telling them that this is not a lawful marriage and he can't do this. Um, the original language um, implies that this was something that John said often. It was something that he was regularly saying to the people that were listening to him. Uh, verse five, because of this, Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. So John speaking out against Herod and his marriage made him upset. He wanted to have John killed for something like sedition or speaking against the ruler in this way, but he also recognized that John was gaining popularity as a prophet, and he feared what kind of uprising might happen if he had John killed, and so he locks him up. Um, and now fast forward, it's Herod's birthday, and there's a fun fact. I didn't know this, but it wasn't super common at this point to... Um, celebrate a person's birthday, with a, at least with a party like this. So you might have celebrated someone's birthday after they had died kind of in honor of them. Um, but some scholars think that it was uh, at this point kind of a, um, like a taboo or kind of like a pagan thing to do. Like the, it, it would be usually associated, if you were celebrating a, celebrating a birthday, that it would be associated with like debauchery and drunkenness and bad behavior and so on. So it's possible that as Matthew's writing this, telling us it's Herod's birthday and that there's a party, that we're kind of meant to think like, well, that's strike one. That's kind of weird that he's throwing a birthday party for himself. Um, strike two would be that his daughter-in-law dances for the whole party. So read verses six and seven. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Um, Herodias' daughter would be likely somewhere around the age of 12 uh, to 14. Um, she's brought before what's likely a large gathering of Herod's guests. Most of them would be men, and she dances for them. And scholars disagree on whether or not this dancing was supposed to be seductive in any kind of way. Either way, it's weird and it's inappropriate, and it kind of gives us a window into the kind of party that was happening here. Um, Herod is likely drunk. His daughter-in-law dances for everyone. He's super happy about it. So in front of all these guests, he makes an official oath um, to this 12-year-old girl that whatever you want, name it, it's yours. And so she does what any 12-year-old girl would do and asks her mom what to do. <laughs> Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Herodias is shrewd and opportunistic in this moment and sees this as a chance to get rid of the threat to her own love life and happiness and maybe a threat to her uh, and Herod's political stability. So she tells her daughter to ask for John the Baptist to be killed and to bring their head on this like serving platter as if they were bringing out dessert or something to this evil party. Um, I know it's, it's dark and it's heavy, but I think we're supposed to think that as we read this, like, ugh, what is Herod doing? He's supposed to be this leader of Israel, and this is messed up. Um, 
One Bible scholar that I read um, on this section noted how Matthew might be putting this story next to the one after it, which is when Jesus feeds the 5,000 as these like um, opposing feasts of these two different kinds of kings where Herod, there's like this debaucherous, terrible, murderous birthday pagan celebration where there's heads and dancing and it's weird and then followed up by Jesus's where he's healing people and he's feeding people miraculously, um, thousands of people with bread and fish. Um, Moving on to verses 9 and 11. The king, 9 through 11. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. So after this daughter passes on the request to her mom, Herod is torn. Like we mentioned earlier, he fears the uh, response of Israel if he kills John because many thought uh, that he was this legitimate prophet. Um, but he had also just made this like legitimate yet drunken oath to his daughter-in-law that he'd do whatever she asked. So he had this dilemma. Does he kind of lose face and credibility in front of all these people and not keep his word and not kill John? Or does he attempt to save face, demonstrate his power and, and stay true to his word and execute uh, John? Uh, about these verses, Stanley Howarah says, in a few powerful sentences, Matthew has described the insecurity of those in power who depend on the presumption of those around them. That is, they must act in a manner that assures those they rule, as well as themselves, that they possess the power they pretend to possess. The powerful lack the power to be powerful, which means that they live lives of destructive desperation. That desperation, moreover, often results in others paying the price for their insecurity. John being the one paying the price. So Herod gives in to this request and uh, gives in to his grip on his power that he has and he has John executed. Verse 12 says, John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Most of the studies that I read on, on this last verse, verse 12, um, suggested that Matthew includes this final detail of the disciples coming to um, take his body and then to let Jesus know what had happened to indicate that they were perhaps ready to start following, excuse me, ready to start following Jesus now. It's not just a kind of a random detail, but kind of an, an ending of John's role of preparing the way for Jesus to where his followers now approach Jesus, letting him know what happened and perhaps are, are about to follow Jesus. Um, so it's a heavy, dark passage. Um, and maybe you agree with me that it's not quite as like um, densely applicable. Like we're not pulling little nuggets out here. Like, okay, don't throw birthday parties. Dancing should be illegal. Hair, it sucks. Like we're not thinking of these things as what to do when we leave today. Um, but there's a story here that's meant to form us at some points in our life and in some way. And so I have two suggestions of things that I, that I think we could be pondering um, tonight and then also just um, thinking about this week. One, I think Matthew means for us to grieve over the state of Israel's rejection of Jesus. Over the last few chapters, Matthew has been building this tension. If we read all the chapters like 10 through 14, like all together in one sitting, I think we would feel it more than kind of going through it little section by section. But he's been building this tension about people who accept Jesus and people who reject Jesus. So in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples on this mission and he warns them that they're going to um, face a lot of rejection, violence and death perhaps. 
Um, he warns them that this is going to happen simply because they are associated with him. Um, in Matthew 12, after Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, uh, we read that the Pharisees begin to plot. It says that they, that they plotted how they might kill Jesus. Shortly after that, they accuse Jesus of being in league with the devil and having power to heal because he has Satan's power, actually. Um, and then in chapter 13, uh, Jesus shares parables about this very fact that people are going to reject him. They're not going to understand the kingdom of God, and they're going to reject Jesus. Um, and then last week, Mark spoke about how Jesus goes to his hometown, people that knew him and loved him, and even they rejected him. So the tension is building. And now in chapter 14, it kind of hits this very serious, it's like a, it makes me think about a moment in a movie where it just like the, the theme and the feel changes, whether it's the cinematography that gets dark or something very serious happens. It's like, it's not that everything leading up to this hasn't been serious, but there's like a marked shift now where we like, it's, it's real and it's starting to get dangerous to be involved with Jesus at this point in the story. So I think we should, even just as people who are like, um, we're part of Abraham's family, we've been grafted in, the Bible says. So we're reading our heritage here and we're reading about ancestors of ours, spiritual, who like really truly rejected Jesus. And Herod's whole, like, I mean, he's supposed to be a, He's a, what we call like a puppet king of Israel. Rome is truly in charge, but they allowed these um, kind of fake political kings to have some sort of semblance of authority over the, the areas that they ruled. Um, and Herod was this. And just, I mean, look at how evil this guy's life and this party was. And I think we're meant to be like, this is tragic that God's, like the, the power players in, in God's, uh, in Israel are, have rejected Jesus and the way of God so much. So I think we're meant to grieve this. Um, the second thing is, I think that we should um, draw a connection in our minds between Israel's prophets, John, and Jesus. I think we should be kind of draw, tying a little thread between these things. So um, Matthew 23, uh, we will never get there. It says this, 29 through 32. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. And then he says, go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. It's like this scathing rebuke of Israel and the Pharisees. And then just a few verses later, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Those two verses and then a few other kind of scattered throughout the New Testament reference this um, tradition of Israel to reject and kill its prophets. So the whole story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18 is about Ahab, king of Israel, and Jezebel's wife seeking to take the life of all these prophets of God, people that would speak to Israel, calling them back to being faithful to God's covenant with them. Um, they were murdered by Ahab and Jezebel. So the idea, though, slightly hyperbolic, is that Israel repeatedly, repeatedly shoots itself in the foot by rejecting and killing those who are trying to help them and those who are trying to point them um, the way back to God. John is considered the last of the Old Testament prophets, though 
what we mostly read about him is in the New Testament. He is um, the final prophet that is preparing the way for Jesus and unfortunately continues in this tradition of being rejected by the power players of Israel. He was calling Israel to repent and to obey. He was even calling out Israel's pseudo-king, Herod, to obey the laws of God. And as they had done in the past, so they did with John, and they killed him. So I think Matthew wants us to see John as this tragic continuation of Israel's rejection of its prophets. And I think he also wants us to see um, similarities between John's story and Jesus, perhaps to um, help us kind of foreshadow what is to come for Jesus's, um, Jesus's story. Um, but there's, there's some links between uh, what we read about John here and what we're going to read about, um, about Jesus. They seem small, but they're there. So in verse five, we read in 14 that Herod wanted to kill John, but was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Similar to what is said of Jesus in Mark 12, it says, then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Similarly, in Luke 22, verse two, it said, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. They're both these two prophets that are speaking against the power structures of Israel, and they're gaining popular support, and the Pharisees or the kings want to shut them down, but they're afraid of what's going to happen if they do. Um, there's even kind of a thematic parallel between what happens here with Herod and John, and I think what happens with Pilate and Jesus in the uh, later other accounts of um, Jesus's death, where like John, for instance, tells us partway through Pilate's interrogation of Jesus, Pilate's trying to figure out what, if anything, has Jesus done wrong? And meanwhile, these crowds of Pharisees and others are just like, crucify him, crucify him. Um, John tells us that at Pilate at one point, um, after the Pharisees tell him Jesus is, uh, says he's the son of God, it, it says Pilate was afraid. Pilate was scared of this whole situation. He's got this riot outside of people that want Jesus killed, and he also doesn't want to kill an innocent person. Pilate is afraid of the people revolting. Um, Perhaps he was afraid that Jesus actually is who he said he was. And so Pilate, attempting to kind of keep his power and keep some semblance of peace in, in his ruling of the situation, he releases Barabbas and decides to execute Jesus. Um, finally, John's disciples, um, at the end of our passage in verse 12, they come to take his body and bury it. Um, after Jesus' death, while um, they are super disheartened and, and probably afraid for, still for their association with Jesus, Matthew tells us that a guy named Joseph of Arimathea says that he had become a disciple, requests Jesus' body so that he could place it in a tomb. So those might seem like um, small or insignificant notes of similarity, but they're details that not only that Matthew noticed, but made sure to record and to show us that there's um, similarities between the Old Testament prophets, John and Jesus, and we're kind of meant to see them as one overarching story of what Israel does um, what Israel's power structure does and how corrupt it had become and what Jesus was coming to um, redeem. Um, so part of our reading scripture, teaching scripture, is to remind ourselves who we are, to place ourselves in the story of God, to just sometimes simply to remember the story. Like, some, like when's the last time that you read Matthew chapter 14, 1 through 12? It's probably been a while. Just to remember the story, remember what happened here, and to place ourselves in it and to remember that we are part of this lineage now, that we are part of God's family. 
to remember with kind of some sobriety what um, the prophets and what John endured and to remember what Jesus endured as he was rejected over and over again, the type of rejection that he endured on our behalf, that he endured on the cross, not just the pain of crucifixion, but the shame of a cursed criminal's death. Um, that he endured to make a way for us to join his story, to join his family, to become children of God who are loved and forgiven and filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give um, each of us here um, the sense that we um, are part of your story. Even the... Um, the dark and sad and serious parts of the story. That all that Matthew's writing, all that the Gospels tell us about the life of Jesus, it was building up to this moment where he would give himself in self-sacrificing love to forgive us and to allow us to join uh, his family, to become sons and daughters of God. So we thank you for these stories. We thank you for the time that we have to open scripture together. We thank you for the freedom that we have to do so. And God, I'm thankful that your spirit is working, that these words in here are coming from you and they are alive, they are active, and they're moving in this church right now, doing things that I could never think that they would do. So would you give us humility, Lord, as your church, as we open scripture, as we continue to read it? Um, to be open to you and to what you would speak to us through it. We pray that each week that we gather to sing and to pray and to read, that we would be reminded who we are and reminded that we belong to you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.